0: Last week we began a new sermon series uh, that is entitled Faithful to Fulfill, Faithful to Fulfill. Uh, For those of you who are watching online, we are are working on trying to integrate slides again so maybe those of you online will see some slides. But as we begin I want to remind you we started a new series, Faithful to Fulfill. The subtitle of this series is A Study of God as Revealed in the Post-Exilic Scriptures. This Lord's Day we're going to continue this series, Faithful to Fulfill, so please open up the word of the Lord to the book of Ezra. In this sermon series we're going to study a handful of books that cover the era known as the post-exilic era. By way of introduction this morning I will remind you of of what the post-exilic era is, as well I will preach the gospel to you so that as we get into the text of Ezra we have things in mind in theological and historical context. So this Lord's Day we're continuing the series, Book of Ezra, that's where you need to be. The Book of Ezra is the opening of the post-exilic narrative of scripture. So as, as, you're, as you're there, let's think about the history. For 70 years, for 70 years, the people of, of Israel suffered in exile, 70 years. Due to the sins of the nation, God justly removed them from their land. They lost absolutely everything. They lost their homes, their, their jobs, their children. In many cases, they lost their lives. And along with it, they lost their culture, their language, their way of, of life. They, they, they lost it all. Gone. Gone. Most tragic of all, as a whole, the people lost their calling from God to be a priesthood to the world. Along with this, the people lost the temple of God in Jerusalem, which was the porthole of the heavens to the earth, ...through which God manifested himself to the world in, in, in this chosen place, the holy city of Jerusalem. He manifested himself in this place by and through God's covenant people, Israel, the children of Abram. As Israel came in faithful worship in the land... As, as Israel was, was worshipping God in the land, as Israel was, was engaged in the service of others according to the divine command of the Torah given by the prophet Moses when they were brought to the land. As Israel did this, the, the people were tilling the soil of the earth for the ultimate renewal, a restoration of paradise that was lost by Adam. Ultimate restoration would come through the children of Abram. You see, Adam was the father of God's creation and humanity. Abram is the father of God's covenant and healing. One a father who ushered in death by his works. The other who ushered in faith by God's grace. Though deserving destruction for rebelling against their creator, God spared humanity and he spared the earth. Now that said... ...there was nonetheless just consequence for our father Adam and our mother Eve... ...which indeed came to all of us, since in them we all, we, we all sinned... ...and through them we all enter into the world. We are born in sin. Subsequent to their sin, our father Adam, our mother Eve... ...the effects of their sin was immediately felt by the earth... ...as the, as the earth began to wither and decay... ...and by humanity it was felt through disease and dysfunction that set in... The most glaring and depressing immediate effect was the absence of God from the presence of humanity in the earth. Paradise was lost. God no longer walked in the garden, not to mention humanity was was exiled from the sacred place of beginnings. Along with God's absence and man's exile, the harmony of human relationships and families was deeply wounded. The earth itself was and is stressed and suffering. Further, things would not improve for humanity after the time of Adam and Eve. Though though patient and wonderfully merciful, justice was ordained by God to come into creation as a result of sin. And so justice comes, And, 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 and over humanity hangs this coming day of reckoning where humanity would be judged by their creator according to their deeds. Judgment based on deeds, of course, if we are honest and rightly introspective with regard to our lives and our deeds, judgment of deeds is a frightening reality. After all, we all have deeds. We all have things that we have done against God. The person who denies this this reality is merely proving the point for they are lying. You see, to say, I have not sinned against God. To say, "I I have no fear of my deeds. I haven't done anything wrong. That statement itself is a contradiction because saying it is sinful because it is not true. We stand before a holy God having sinned against him. And this puts us in a position of trouble, really a place of no escape. For God is omnipresent. There is nowhere where he is not. And added to this theological fact of his omnipresence is the sobering reality that God will not turn a blind eye to evil. No, God will not be bribed or bamboozled or hoodwinked. Unlike our corrupt politicians and and powers and celebrities who abuse justice and seem to get away with it, the courtroom of the heavens will not be fooled. Now listen... This is not good news for us, for it means that we all will get what we have coming. And while we may rationalize sin by appealing to others who are worse, sinners. People say things like, you know, I I mean, I'm a good person. I mean, I've never killed anyone, as if that's the standard of righteousness anyway. Dad's with daughters, right? A A young boy shows up on your doorstep to take your daughter out and you say, tell me about yourself. Well, I've never killed anyone. You know, close the door. You're not exactly a good person because you're looking at others who are worse than you. As if that's the standard of righteousness, as I said a moment ago. Not killing people, I mean, that's a low bar. God's court does not credit us for doing what we ought to do in this illustration, not killing people. You're you're not going to get a pass from jail for not killing people. God does not grade on a curve further. God God grades by his righteous standard, his righteous and perfect standard, that is God's law, under which we all fall short, for we have violated its holy and true commands. Like Israel, who we are studying in the book of Ezra, we deserve punishment for our sin. We deserve exile. That's the era that we're in, where exile has come to completion and post-exile sets in. We deserve exile. Worse. Not merely exile from an earthly land. We deserve exile from the hope of our home in heaven. We deserve exile from the hope of resurrection. We deserve the presence of God to be removed from our lives. We have rebelled against the creator. Our actions betray our words. Humanity and our culture prides itself, however, on being the antithesis of the truth that I bring to you this morning. Our culture prides itself on being spiritual, doesn't it? How often do you hear that? Oh, I'm spiritual. I'm good. But our evening news exposes us, does it not? Sure, we tell ourselves that it is not us as we watch the news. It is them. In fact, many don't exactly even watch the news anymore. They just watch the equivalent of political sports commentaries by shock jock journalists or political gossip columns in which pseudo-political scientists with more in common to TMZ stoke the flames of tribalism along with but-what-about-ism that blinds our culture from seeing its own sin. The sins of the tribe, not to mention the sins of one's own heart. Speaking of tribes, the tribes of Israel were crushed in the exile by the powers of Assyria in the north in the 700s BC as we surveyed last week and shortly thereafter in the 500s in the south when the Babylonian Empire dominated those lands. Israel lost her land. The precursor was that Israel lost her faith. To Abram was promised that land. To Moses, the conditions of faith for prosperity in that land were given, the Torah. While the latter, the Torah, was conditional, the former to Abram was unconditional. And thus, by God's grace, they returned to the land, but not because of their deeds, not because of their faith, not because they had it coming, but because God is merciful. Amen. So Ezra opens with return. And as we look at that, we, we, we are being taught about a God who is merciful. Again, not because Israel deserved it not because there was revival, not because there was even reform on the horizon. Oh no, it had nothing to do with their works and everything to do with the gracious work of God. As I have explained, by our works, by our deeds, we stand condemned. We stand before God in need of forgiveness and further in need of one who will work our debt that we owe. In the history of the post-exile, God is preparing his people for the one who would come, who would offer both forgiveness and the payment of their debt. Uh, 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 the, one, the one who has come is none other, none other than the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ whose name we gather in today. You see, we owed a debt that we could not pay. In his life and his death, he paid it for us. And so we gather in his name to worship him because of what he has done in history and continues to do today in the present, extending his grace to sinners. And please understand... Not to mention, please celebrate church, that in Christ we have not God sending a third party to handle the mess of humanity. Oh no, we have God himself in Christ, specifically God the Son in the flesh who has come to stand as a man in our place to pay our debt and to pay our debt as a man and to offer forgiveness as God. He is the God-man in one person, the eternal Son. Now concerning the latter, Being God, it's his prerogative to forgive. He is the offended party, creation has rebelled against the creator. He's God, it's his prerogative to forgive. In Christ, we have both the offended party, God, and we have the offending party represented in the incarnation when God the Son became a man. Now this man, Jesus of Nazareth, unlike us, he is free from sin and thus he can satisfy our debt. When you're broke, you can't pay for things. Amen. (laughs) Right, You might be able to charge things, but therein right, you're just racking up that debt and you still owe that. Jesus is not broke. Jesus has no sin. Jesus paid a debt that he did not owe because we owed a debt that we could not pay. This wondrous work of satisfaction, the payment of our penalty by God who became Jesus the man, was and is the doing of a God who is providential over creation. You see, the God of creation ordained to permit humanity's mutiny And he decreed to deliver us and elect people from the fall to be rescued from the judgment of our willful rebellion. He chose to love us. He chose to love us, his enemies. He chose not to exile us, but to bring us home. Not just for dinner, but forever as family by the Spirit, through the Son, adopted as sons by the Father. Making Jesus not only our Savior, but our brother. The one God who eternally dwells as Father, Son, and Spirit in perfect union has chosen to make us one in Him by and through the work of the Son in the flesh in our place redeeming our sinful flesh and regenerating our souls with the Spirit to bring us to repentance and faith and justifying us in God's courtroom. More than a mere legal transaction, of course, God the Judge is also a surgeon. He's got a scalpel and knives and He replaces our, our, our sinful heart that we are born with. And He place, replaces it with a new heart that beats for His glory. You see, the Spirit gives us new life, which Jesus spoke about. And He described it as being born again, new birth. Now in the book of Ezra, we have a new birth. It's a national, covenantal new birth. And as we see this new birth, may we reflect on our, our own individual new birth that has come through Christ by the Spirit. As we see God bringing Israel back into the promised land, as we reflect upon His mercy, let us draw, brothers and sisters, to His throne for His mercy and His grace, for we are prone to wander. And sin plagues us. Let us run to Him for mercy this morning. And the question before the people in this passage, a question that I'll put before you today by way of application, is this, who is coming with us? That is the title of today's message, who is coming with us, who is coming with us, who's in, who's out, who's going to be on mission, who's going to get serious. In my last sermon, I likened the national birth of Israel, this return to the promised land, to the rising of the mythical phoenix on the ashes of fallen Jerusalem rises, rises the phoenix, this post-exilic community that is headed home. This was not the happenstance of history. It was the doing of the divine, just like our salvation, that I have preached to you this morning by way of introduction, with the gospel before us, with the work of Christ fresh in our ears, behold the history of his people, the flesh of his forefathers, into which the Savior, the Messiah, would come. You see, in Ezra, we're studying the history that prepares the way for our Lord and his ministry in the land to the returned people. So in today's study, I pray that you'll be moved... To see the mercy of god and that by his tender mercies you'll be drawn in repentance and faith and worship and reconciliation and oneness so that to the question delray church who is coming with us you'll say i am i am as we behold the providence of the prince of peace and the lord of lords who has redeemed his covenant people in israel and restored them to the land while he reigned over the sovereigns of the earth and used them to do his bidding this morning as we study that, that you would be stirred to say, yes, sign me up, I'm on mission, let's go. Let's continue this work of redemption that we are studying from the days of Ezra to the days of Christ to the days of Delray Church in the city of Los Angeles. If you have the outline in front of you, you see the first point is providence and sovereigns. And by providence and sovereigns, I'm I'm setting this up. We're talking about the providence of God in salvation and the providence of God in the history of His people. I've mentioned the histories of Assyria and Babylon, these earthly sovereigns. Specifically, I've, I've talked to you about how the true providential Lord used these earthly sovereigns to discipline His people for transgression against the law of Moses and also how God used them to fulfill His promise. These earthly sovereigns were puppets. They were puppets in the hand of God. And in chapter 1, we, we, we meet the puppet of the Persian Empire, Cyrus, and we see God moving through him. Look at chapter 1, verse 1. Chapter 1, verse 1. What do we read there in the text? The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, the king of Persia. He's the Lord's puppet. Verse 1 ties this puppetry to prophecy, the historic prophecy of Jeremiah. Given long ago before the exile by the revelation of the Spirit, Jeremiah told the people that this exile was going to happen. What you guys went through, the prophets said this was going to happen. Last week when we studied the prophecy of Jeremiah, I also took you to the oracle of Isaiah, which was given 200 years before Ezra, who likewise said this was going to happen. Isaiah even references this earthly sovereign of Persia by name. Isaiah in Isaiah 44 verse 28 and Isaiah 45 verse 1 names him Cyrus, 200 years before he was on the scene. The point of prophecy is providence. The text is showing the reader who is in control. It may seem obvious to us on this side of the text, but for the people living in this history, it would have felt frightfully out of control. But it's not out of control. Indeed, a reminder that we need today as we look at 2020 and 2021 and we feel like things are out of control. Let me remind you, elections, decisions, governors, governments, all the rest, it's all in the hand of God. It's not out of control. Do we trust the hand of the Lord? Do Do we think that the puppets of this earth and their pontifications and deliberations and decisions are somehow outside of the provident hand of God? Evil and exile are not overpowering the providential Lord. On the contrary, God permitted those in his plan. The plan of God involved the permittance of human wickedness to bring justice. Cyrus was evil before him, Nebuchadnezzar as well evil. However, the Lord used them in their evil empires. One of them he used to discipline his people and to bring justice to wickedness, Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. The other, Cyrus of Persia, to serve in God's raising up of a remnant to send them back to the land to bring glory to himself for being merciful and gracious. This pagan Persian king that we're reading about in Ezra chapter 1, verse 1 is being played by God as a puppet to do his will. Thinking he is in control, Cyrus puts this guy, Sheshbazar, in charge. Draw your eyes at verse 8 of chapter 1. Cyrus the king of Persia had brought out by the hand of Mithradath and he counted them out to Sheshbazar. Mithradath uh, is a popular Persian name. Mithradath means given to Mithra. Mithra is the name of a pagan god. If you Google Mithra, pagan god. Okay, so Mithra is in charge, pagan god. Who else is in charge? Shesh Bazar is named after Shamash, the sun god. Scholars think he might also be named after uh, Sin, who is the moon god. You have two guys named after pagan gods, two pagans they are put in charge of the people. Now, now, depending on where you are in the political spectrum or the right or the left, you didn't like the last president, you don't like this one, or if you like me, you don't like any of them, but you need to be reminded that whoever, whoever's in control, they're actually not in control, God's in control. Here we have rank pagans named after pagan gods and, and, and the Lord is using them. Cyrus himself, as I shared with you in last week's message, was the co-opter of religion. While we see him being nice to Jewish people in Ezra chapter 1 and, and sending them back into the land and giving them cash to build their temple, we don't want to conclude that Cyrus was somehow a closet believer. Oh No, Cyrus was a shrewd politician. He was a perplexed pagan given over to polytheism. So Cyrus would just take in religions and whatever, and he would use them for political play, to punk the people, to take in simple minds and play them, to get them to divide with one another, to, to get them to think he's on their side. He's just playing games and expanding his power. Aren't we glad that politicians don't do that anymore? They, you know, politicians, right? Separation of church and state, they don't do that anymore. In our divided culture, of course, it's dangerous ground to pick on parties dangerous ground to pick on a president but of course it is easy to be nonpartisan and pick on both sides as they are filled with figures who claim religion even christianity and do things that are blatantly against their profession we currently have a president who claims catholicism but is bringing legislation that tears apart the the catholic family ethic not to mention tears apart life in the womb the former president oh yeah i could go on but you know what the one before him i could too and the one before him, 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 we could go all the way back to George Washington. Heck, we could go back to the Queen and the King. We could just keep going back to our father Adam and our mother Eve. Now, while I do believe this nation of ours is exceptional, and I cannot think of anywhere else in the world where I would want to be a citizen, nonetheless, I cannot whitewash history, let alone my faith, for sake of earthly favor or tribal treasures that moth and rust destroy. That is just what earthly powers do, they destroy. And politicians under the spell and the allure of power will play their parties and mingle religion and nationalism and even enter into war to secure their standing and light smoke screens to keep everyone confused and divided while the power is grabbed and secured. So in Ezra we meet Cyrus. He crushed Babylon and now he's subversively doing his thing. Cyrus the pagan king playing with and for power and using religion in the process. It is interesting to note that Cyrus is still an image of religion and a political power to this day. In fact, Cyrus to this day is a cult figure amongst uh, amongst, uh, modern Iranians. His tomb serves as a spot of reverence for millions of people today. Cyrus still continues to reach into our present day with a cultish following. So in that day is where it all began. Cyrus amassed power by the sword and he maintained it by propaganda and politics and religion and spirituality. He takes over people. He lets people have their gods. He even uh, allows them to build their temples, gives them money to help, co-ops and syncretizes spirituality to secure his status, to get loyal followers who will defend him at all costs, to divide them even among God's own people. Last week I spoke to you about the significant archeological find of the, the Cyrus cylinder This piece of history, I've I've got to see it with my own eyes, it's actually stored in in London. This piece of history, the Cyrus Cylinder, records his religious and his political escapades. So we have the text of scripture but we have archaeological data such as the Cyrus Cylinder which gives us more intel about how he would use gods and he would use other religions to gain power, taking over the people. He's playing a game. He's playing a game. And in this case he's letting Israel go home, however he's being a shrewd player and, and he is a player who crushes a lot. Cyrus has placed people in positions where he will crush them. He is playing and attaching strings to things so that he could be in control. Mithradath verse, verse 8, Sheshbazar verse 8, he's got people there. Sheshbazar is dubbed the Prince of Judah, scholars spill a lot of ink of old, uh, around old Sheshi here. Some have tied uh, Sheshi to Sheshnazar in 1 Chronicles chapter 3. Others have speculated that old Sheshi might be Zerubbabel, and still others think that he might have even been Zerubbabel's uncle. Concerning Zerubbabel, we will meet him in due time in this study. He is involved in the first wave of migration. It, there's three waves of migration as they go back. I'll say more about that in a moment. But if he was uh, old Sheshi, Sheshbazar as I call him, uh, Cyrus's possible attempt to control here does not work. He places the pagan in there, but it does not work. It does not work because Zerubbabel is not loyal to the crown, as we will see. In in, in any case, the fact that Sheshbazar is obscure and mentioned only a a few times after this, in fact, just three times after this, shows at the end of the day that whatever Cyrus was trying to do with him, it failed. It didn't work because everything was under the the control of God. That's the point on the outline, providence. Everything's in his providence. We might, we might look at this and kind of compare it to a roller coaster, I suppose. Remember those, uh, remember amusement parks, you know, 2019, Six Flags, you go on a roller coaster at Six Flags and, and, and you get on that thing and, you know, and it's, it, it's designed to make you feel like it's out of control, right? You go up and you, oh my gosh, we're gonna die, we're gonna die, but you're not gonna die, it's all a part of the design. You're, you're perfectly safe, you're strapped in, it just feels like you're gonna de- die, it's just a part of the design. Now, God was not a roller coaster engineer who is bringing heart palpitations to the people for entertainment purposes, to be clear. Oh, no. This is a part of His discipline on the people for their sin. They brought it upon themselves. But God is lovingly and patiently in control over all of this. They're not going to fly off of the rails of this roller coaster. In fact, the rails of the roller coaster are going to wind right into the Holy Land and open up covenant blessings to the people that they did not deserve by His grace. So in chapter one, we read about the people who were headed to the promised land. In chapter two, where we left off, the historical account picks up. Now let's move from point one, providence and sovereigns, to point two, the province and sons. Chapter two, verse one, look at it. Now these are the people of the province. Stop right there really quick. The province is Yehuda, Judah, as we would say, a part of the satrapy of Babylon that extended up to the, to, to the reign of Xerxes. If you, if, you had, if you had a map of this and you were looking at, uh, the province extended, Judah extended south as far as Beth Zur, which is modern Hebron, to Gezer, north to Mitzvah, and east to the Jordan. Now thinking about the Jordan, we're reminded of Joshua and how Joshua brought the people to the Jordan and how the river opened when Israel came to the land. The river opened and they came to the land and they came to establish the kingdom of God. Thinking of, of Joshua, we're reminded of a later Joshua, Yeshua, Jesus. ...who also came to the Jordan with the prophet John. And this time the river wasn't split open, but the heavens were split open. And the father said, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And the spirit fell from the heavens, showing the people that a new age had dawned. The prophesied kingdom of God was there with the Messiah offering the kingdom to the people. Of course, the people rejected that. Going back to the days of the first Joshua, they would reject the king as well. Coming back to this era in Ezra, they're coming back into the land. And we have all these images as you have Bible history in your mind. And historic Jesus who is the center of it all. History climaxes in the incarnate son Jesus who came to fulfill and recapitulate the very history that we are studying this day. So as we read it, think of him and draw near to him. The covenants of God that climax in him. The covenant to Israel, the covenant that was given the people in that place and the prosperity of the earth. The covenant that was given to David that a king would sit on the throne and, 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 and reverse what Adam and Eve ushered into the creation. Death, disease and dysfunction. It would bring harmony and life and resurrection. The covenants of God that we the church have inherited. A history that is not ours. We've been adopted into this. And this is a part now of our legacy that we carry. So when the question is asked, who's coming with us, we're a part of that question. Now, the people of the province, verse 1, who came up with the captivity of the exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away to Babylon and returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his city. We read this and you've got to say, it's happening. It's really happening. Seventy years, right? Seventy years. Uh, restaurants reopening outside. I'm like, yeah, restaurants. You know, it's been like a year, you know, 70 years. Imagine COVID quarantines for 70 years. 70 years, 70 years. It's coming to an end. And who are the lucky ones, or rather the ones who are ordained, give me my first point about Providence. Who are these lucky ones who are the first to experience the coming back? On a superficial note with COVID quarantines, I think a lot about reopening. I think about, you know, going to the movies. You know, people in New York going to Broadway or whatever. I saw yesterday that Dodger Stadium and Angel Stadium is going to reopen on April the 1st. Oh, the reopenings, right? Schools reopening. Parents, amen, right? Uh, Being the first to just experience those reopenings, to go to certain places that you haven't been to in some time. And with our happiness, we must stop and remember those, of course, who lost loved ones. And those reopenings, while they may be happy, they will never be normal. There will be sadness mixed in with the joy Eventually the cameras will come, eventually we'll begin taking places of, uh, taking pictures of places and food and the rest. We'll feel the loss of loved ones in the, in the midst of the year uh, 2019 into 2020 and 2021. But the, the Instagram will start flooding, pictures will start coming. And as we look at the text of Ezra, you go, man, what would have, you know, if the technology were there, what would have Ezra's Instagram looked like? Who are these people, right? Who's in the shots? Well, he tells us Ezra starts tagging people on his Facebook page. Verse two, they came with Zerubbabel, Je- uh Yeshua, Nehemiah, Sariah, Realiah, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mishpar, a whole bunch of names that are really hard to pronounce, right? You go, he's tagging people. Ezra references Zerubbabel. You might recall last week that I surveyed for you the post-exilic waves. I made a mention to it a a, a few moments ago that there are three waves of it. If you have the outline printed on the backside above the the group questions, there's a little chart. It has an arrow that says, captivity 70 years. And And then comes Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel brings the first wave of immigrants back to the land. And then a second wave comes with Ezra. And a final wave comes with Nehemiah. The first wave with Zerubbabel is all about building the temple, the place of worship. The second wave with Ezra comes uh, with the people for for worship in the place. And finally Nehemiah comes to build a wall because the people were under attack. So with the first wave we read of Zerubbabel here in chapter 2 verse 2, we're thinking about the first wave of migrations. And who are these folks? Who are these migrants coming back into the land? If you notice the chapter continues with a long list of names. And you're already like, this sermon has gone on for some time and there's a whole lot going on in the passage. Don't worry, I'm not going to read all of these names and all that. We're, we're going to skim through this. The, the first chapter, though, before we start skimming through the names, gives us some intel that last week I saved for this week intentionally. Uh, so go back to chapter 1, verse 5. It gives us a little bit of information about these names that are otherwise foreign to us. Chapter 1, verse 5, what do we read there? We read, the heads of the fathers of the households of Judah and Benjamin, the priests and the Levites arose, even everyone whose spirit God had stirred up to go and rebuild the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem. Here we read about the people. Specifically, we read about the men the fathers. In our secular culture, of course, reading about the men and the fathers might sound pejoratively patriarchal. However, in this culture, they recognize the significance of men in leading a culture the significance of men specifically in leading restoration. Without men, battles are lost. With men, battles are won. Of course, we need women on those fronts as well, but the emphasis is on the men leading. Uh, Single women who are in the house, if I can admonish you in that, be patient and make sure you marry well. I've seen many godly women who uh, settled and come to regret it later in life to to be married to someone who who wasn't in the Lord and who brings devastation into their life. Single women in the house, be patient, be prayerful. Men matter, the leadership of men matter. Men have to lead. And so the text of Ezra uh, uh, describes these, these men, these households of Judah, them rising up to lead, to love, to serve, to sacrifice. On this note, although the text mentions the men, things are actually not off to a good start. You see, all of the tribes of Israel, there's 12 of them, and we only get mention of two, Ben and Judah. Now, on the one hand, this is a reminder that they were decimated. Their numbers have dropped. They lost people. Families and tribes were slaughtered. Lucky people were able to escape out. If you know your Bible history and your geography, you might think, but wait, there's only two tribes in the south, and didn't didn't Nebuchadnezzar come and wipe out the south? And then uh, Cyrus came and wiped out... Uh, 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 Nebuchadnezzar so that accounts for the two well yeah but here's here's the thing about this we see in 1st Chronicles chapter 9 2 Chronicles chapter eleven, Second Chronicles chapter 30 that the tribes actually spread across borders so we know that the tribes of Asher Man- uh, Manasseh Zebulun Ephraim Issachar lived in the south too so it wasn't just the two tribes in the south there were other tribes in the south So so as Ezra is writing this, then we see this is actually sad, because as he says, who's going with us? Only two tribes come forward. Who's going with us? Who will be there? Where is everyone? Only two come forward. Now in addition to reminding us what's lost, this is an indication of who was willing to work in faithfulness and who had left to find comfort in other things. In other words, more tribes were available, but they were just unwilling, undesiring. Follow me. Time had passed. It was 70 years. It's 70 years. I mean, folks forget about where they come from in 70 years. If, if you are the child of an immigrant, for example, you have certain dynamics that you grow up with your parents or your grandparents where they're from a different land, a different place, they do things differently, and you were raised in a different place, and so there's a intergenerational, intercultural uh, international gap that takes place there. there. There's a generation that was born in Israel that was taken out and they've had kids, their kids have had kids, their kids have had kids and now you've got this, this gap of time that has passed. Folks have forgotten where they come from. They've settled in, they've assimilated. Immigrant grandparents are out of touch with their great-grandchildren, their, their, their children. They're out of touch with this. Babylon and Persia had culturally taken the hearts of the people. And so the temptation, hey, who's going to come? Let's go. Let's go back to the ashes. It's going to be like, yeah, not, you know, I'm cool. I, you know, purses popping, the cucumbers, right? Like I'm not, what, what, I'm not trying to go back back there. I'm, I'm, I'm not from there. I don't even speak that language. What are you talking about? I went to, you know, I went, I went to Cyrus High School. What are you talking about? I don't want to go back there. We're leaving a good place to go to a bad place. Why would I do that? Leave home to go through hell? No thank you. The answer lies, the answer lies in the question who's going to go. The answer lies not in human grit but in divine grace. We already saw in the text that it was God who was the one who was stirring the hearts of the people. Further, it was God who was puppeting Cyrus. God is moving the the, the pagan ruler and using him for his will. And in verse 5 we read everyone whose spirit God had stirred. Those are the ones who say we will go. It reminds me of what the prophet Zechariah said who we saw in our study last week and we will study the book of Ze- Zechariah from chapter 1 all the way to the end but Zechariah prophesied in this time Zechariah 4:7, not by might nor by power but by, but by my spirit says the Lord of hosts who's going to go? that answer had already been answered by the spirit of the living God the oracle of Zechariah the scene from Ezra is an encouragement to us it's an encouragement to us, Delray Church, as we've gone through a rough year. As we've had folks who we love who've moved, as those who are, who are remaining are feeling missional stress of limited resource and lowering numbers. Uh, we, we, we looked at this with our budget where we're shaving off of this and, and leaders in the church feeling this stress who are here today. Let me speak to you from the word of the Lord. While the gathering weekly on Sundays is a joyful corporate worship experience as we come in obedience to God's word and as God has carried us in His graces through all of this and He is faithful and He deserves all the praise, it has nonetheless been difficult for our congregation as a result of a wide variety of reasons from the usual everyday things to unusual tragic things and many other things, sinful, political, practical, immunological, relational, and more. And with these intersections, there is a temptation for a small church like ours, laboring in a, in a big city like Los Angeles, to feel discouraged. Many of our ministry leaders have shared this, just feelings of discouragement. Those of you who sacrifice so much to be here, who are active in sharing the gospel and are active in catechizing your children and discipleship at home, and you're joyful, you're joyful, You're joyful in worship with the body of Christ. You can have those feelings. And in the midst of that sacrifice, we can feel fatigued and the temptation to be discouraged sets in. And here we have a text before us in Ezra reminding us that God has always had a remnant and that God is always faithful. And in the case of Israel, the Lord was preparing the people for the end of exile. Specifically, God was separating his flock, exposing sin in the flock of who was willing and who was joyful, and who was in unity. And God's, God's calling them by His Spirit and equipping them for this work. The Lord had been faithful to continue His work through the people of Israel in this dispensation in the church. And while the church does not have an unconditional land promise, we don't, God has been faithful throughout church history to carry His people, the church, in places all around the world, including this little church in this big city. Praise be to God. So let me say this to you, Delray Church. The faithful and the joyful here today, God has been pruning and preparing us. There is no doubt in my mind, absolutely no doubt in my mind. And I'm doubtful about many things, but not this. He is, ready, he is readying us for our own sort of exile and return so that we might rebuild not our programs, not our buildings, not our... The grass, it would be nice, but not the grass. Not events, proms, and harvest parties. Not the stuff lost in quarantine. But the people in holiness, in joy, in submission, in service, in love. In the name of the Lord Jesus, I stand here today to call on us in repentance and in faith before God in humble oneness and sacrifice for his glory and fame in this place, in this place. And further, let us come in renewed passion for prayer for our households and for godly men such as these to rise up and lead their families against the voices of the culture that will scream to them to do anything and everything but have a faithful presence in a dark place. In Ezra, we see God raising up godly men to take them into the darkness We see God stirring in their hearts and moving in the community among these men to take their their wives, to take their sisters and their children, and to join their hearts and their hands in mission. And and we see God doing it all for his glory as he's stirring in them. Now verse 2, going back to it, we read there at the end of verse 2, the number of the men of the people of Israel. And then the chapter goes on, if you just look at it while you're listening, the chapter goes on to give a register of the men. This list is a testimony to God's goodness in calling these Jewish leaders to lead the people of Israel, God's covenant people. No doubt the people are tired and the people are torn. They're distressed and divided. Just like people are divided over masks and presidents, vaccines and immigration, Popeye's chicken sandwiches and Chick-fil-A sandwiches, Coca-Cola and Pepsi. People are divided over all kinds of things, CNN and Fox News. The leaders were gonna have a hard time calling the people into unity Indeed, it wouldn't be a hard time, it would be absolutely impossible unless the Lord moved on their hearts. So this in front of us is a list of names, but, but, but understand this is a list of God's work in hearts. It is a list not of the brave and the bold, not of the strong and the smart or whatever else. This is a list of God's work pulling from the opinionated and the I could care less folks, from the dogmatic and the apathetic, from the lazy and the hardworking, from the proud quarrelers and the tapped out types. God draws them in by his grace and says, I'm going to use you to glorify myself. As the Apostle Paul would say, he uses the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. He uses the weak to shame the strong. And that is a chin check to all of us who are in Christ because it means that if you are in Christ, it wasn't because you were smart and had it figured it out or you were hardworking and had it coming. You were dumb. You didn't get it. You were in the dark. Blessed be his name who came and got you. This is a reminder in their national history of our spiritual history, it all all parallels it is a reminder of the call of mission that we have that we can only do by his power. A reminder, a reminder to be merciful and patient, above all prayerful, and to cry out, Oh God, we need you. We need you. For sake of time, we can't read verse uh, 3 through 35. It's all a bunch of names that you'd be trying to syllabify and going, Man, these are some crazy names. Uh, but if you're looking for Bible names for future kids, you know, go ahead and knock yourself out. Pick one. Verse 3, the sons of Perosh, you can name someone Perosh, the sons of Shephthiah. You got names and numbers, right? Perosh 2172, Shephthiah 372. The list goes on, names and numbers. Of course, the names aren't exactly names to us, but again, they're known to God, beloved of God, intimately known and chosen by the Lord. Every name on the list. We look at verse 3 through 35, foreign, unknown to us, but everyone are personal treasures by God, picked, ordained to be there. And I remind you that if you are in Christ and you are here this day, so too, your name is in, is in the book. And so too, your, your name selected of God ordained to be here for his mission. Their mission was Aliyah. Aliyah is a Hebrew word that means ascent. It is the biblical concept of the immigration of the Jews coming off of exile and diaspora into the land. That's called Aliyah, ascent. The act of going up, Aliyah. Jerusalem is up, you go up to Jerusalem, Aliyah. Aliyah is a term when the descendants of Abraham, it's a term that's used even today when the descendants of Abraham make a pilgrimage to come to live in the land and seek the Lord. This Aliyah, this ascent is absolutely no joke. It's a serious excursion. Mind you, there's no cars. There's no transportation system, especially not for the poor and beaten down immigrants of Israel who had been crushed by Assyria, Babylon, and now the Medo-Persian Empire. They have absolutely nothing. They would be attacked and travel. Criminals attack travelers, wild carnivorous animals are out at night when you travel. It's dangerous to travel in this world. It's a long journey. In fact, I mapped out the ancient road that is believed to have been taken by by scholars. Uh, For those of you who are watching online, maybe you you could see the slide or I'll show you guys later, but I mapped it out on Google Maps. It's 24 hours in a car on modern roads to get from where they are back to Jerusalem. I mapped it out on Google Maps where you could click the option of walking and it calculated it at 317 hours to walk. Now, if you walk 10 hours a day, it would take you about a month to get there. Of course, traveling with children and carrying supplies, that would slow things down. It would take much longer. Those of you who come here today with kids, it takes longer to get to church, doesn't it? Right? To sit through a, a, a service, you know, they get wiggly. Can you imagine trying to walk? from the Medo-Persian Empire all the way into Jerusalem, 317 hours. At 10 hours a day it would take you over a month to get there. And of course with children and stuff it would take longer. As Americans we think of harsh travels in the history of our nation. I think of the difficult and dark treks that were brought in the transatlantic slave trade as black bodies were trafficked across the sea and how dark and how evil that was. I think of the dark and evil dehumanizing journeys of the Trail of Tears in this nation. I think of the, the migrations of the American frontier, a bit more adventurous and optimistic, I suppose. But amidst the danger and the violence and the harsh elements of people who are traveling to come west to find freedom. Israel was no stranger to such slavery and exile and oppression. And now comes aliyah, liberation. So we move from providence and sovereigns, province and sons. Now to this third point, priests and servants. And we are now brought up to verse 36 if you look at the text. The priests, verse 36 begins. Here we read about the returning priests. When you add the numbers together, you get 4,289 priests. In verses 40 through 58, you read about the returning Levites. When you add the numbers of the Levites together from verses 40, 41, and 42, you get 341. So again, listen to the numbers. 4,289 priests, 341 Levites. These numbers are telling. I'll say more about what they are telling in just a moment. But first, I need to make sure that you understand what priests and Levites are. Okay, Priests. What are priests? They're priests. right? They lead the people in worship. They are the pastoral leaders, the spiritual leaders from the tribe of Levi, which is one of the 12 tribes of Israel. God chose Israel, the people, to be a priesthood for the entire world in that place, the Holy Land, bring his temple there to manifest the heavens of the earth there. But more narrowly, Israel as a priesthood, among this priesthood of Israel, there was this tribe Levi that would serve as a priesthood for the people. And more narrowly, among the tribe of Levi, uh, not everyone in Levi is a priest. And so you'd have to meet certain qualifications in order to become a priest. So, so listen, while all priests were Levites, not all Levites were priests. The Levites in this text are those who were servants to the priest. They are helpers to the priest. They are the people who are on staff, as we might say, who are helping pastors uh, lead. So we read about the priests in verse 36 through 39. And then we read about the Levites in verse 40 through 42. We read about uh, about, uh, Levitical singers, verse 41. That's Landon, our Levitical singer. That's his new nickname. Levitical gatekeepers, verse 42. Those are those that make sure the building is open. Mike Dolan's our Levitical gatekeeper, right? We read about Levitical temple servants in verses 43 through 54. We read about the sons of Solomon's servants from 55 through 58. Okay, so that's what's going on. You have people who are helping the priests and the priests here. And looking at the numbers, we see that the numbers are really down. I said I say more about the numbers and here it is. There's way more priests and not enough people to help. There's a lot of work and not a lot of hands. The priests were in need of men to help, but apparently the volunteers were low. This is not how you want to begin, Aaliyah. You need people. Who's going to go with us? Yay! There's like two hands. And we're going to see later in our study of the post-exilic texts that the moral compromise of the people, their loss of touch with their covenant and culture, their comfort to be in Persia, they, want, they wanted the picket fence, they wanted all the rest, and so they weren't willing to give up to, to serve in a dark place. And we mustn't stand as judge over them, looking at these numbers and going, dang, that's a lame way to get started. You don't have people to help because we know an ever-present challenge for us today in a place like our setting, this is a reality. Mission in Los Angeles, if you're gonna do it, it's gonna cost you, it's a sacrifice. California itself is a sacrifice. LA even more, it's worse than California, right? Uh, I mean, the dollar doesn't go far, but crime and immorality goes really far. There's corruption in the systems of the city, injustice, instability, insanity. The stats of crime, mental health, homelessness, addiction, family breakdowns are high. The people are high. I mean, but you know what's not high? Thriving biblical churches, teaching sound, reformed doctrine, uplifting the gospel. There's scores of non reformed, scores of churches that are preaching therape- therapeutic moralistic deism. God is good, blah, 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 not preaching gospel, not teaching word. The the city is filled with all of these hardships and there's, there's few and far between uplifting and doing the very things we're doing. It is tempting to tap out. Now before I'm misrepresented this morning, I'm not saying people can't move, not at all. What I'm saying is we ought to move for mission because mission is absolutely everything. That is what we have been saved for, and that is what God calls us to. I think of our beloved Marlon and Jimena, wink, wink, you know what I'm talking about, who are headed to the 1040 window in hostile terrain. They, they have been uh, in the process of training. Hopefully we will see them later this month. Our beloved Marlon and Jimena, uh, talking with them on the phone about the training. Their children are going through terrorist training. They're running drills where men dressed up come into rooms and kidnap people to teach their children, what do you do if mom and dad are taken? And why are they going? Why are they going? Because his name is worthy to be praised among the nations, to sacrifice to that end. They will lose it all. They could lose their lives to to do this. We move for mission. We've been called to mission We've been called to give up the comforts of life, to move into the chaos, to cry out into the darkness. Devil, you have lost. Your gates will not prevail against the people. And understand that what we see going on in Ezra is more than building a temple. This will take more than Home Depot runs. They're going to have to run to Turner's. They're going to have to run to Martin B. Reading. Some of you are like, what's that? Those are ammo stores. They're gonna have to have weapons to finish the mission that is ahead. And so too, we carry a weapon, the sword of the spirit. So too, we have been called by Paul in Ephesians to put on the armor of God for such a time as this. These people, they move, these people, they sacrifice. And thinking about our brother Marlon and our sister Jimena, I think to myself, oh, I have it so good. I have it so good. I have it so good. I find myself going, ah, you know, I miss my PowerPoint. You guys know me. I want my PowerPoint. I miss being inside. I hear voices, of, oh, the government persecution, you know, the government persecution, right? I, because of my international work, I'm connected to the global church and missionaries in places of the world who are going through real persecution. And without sharing stories, Marlon Hamena, Jimena, we have to speak in code. I know saints who are in the world who have police on their backs who are breaking into their churches and arresting them. I have brothers and sisters who have violence on their backs, real government persecution, actual Marxists, actual fascists, actual crazy communists and pagans with actual weapons. And it really puts things in perspective. So does this passage put it in perspective. Mission calls us to hard places and of all places in the earth, it's Jerusalem. A land that was ordained to flow with milk and honey that had been reduced to ashes and rubble. And it was reduced to that because of their compromise to live in comfort and to chase after the things of the world. Now, having recorded the priests and the servants, Ezra moves to talk about the folks who don't have certified family ties. Look at uh, look at verses 59 through 61. It's a list of some sketchy names. Draw your eyes at verse 62. These searched among the ancestral registration, they could not be located, therefore they were considered unclean and excluded from the priesthood. This brings me to the next point on your outline, we're going to land the plane. We've looked at providence and sovereigns, province and sons, priests and servants, now purity and separation, verse 59 through 63. The names here are sketchy because they're not kosher, they're not progeny from the patriarch of promise. And that was a part of God's holy will. You see, holiness actually involves separation. Truth involves separation, right? The equation 2 plus 2 is 4 means that 4 is separate from all other numbers with regard to that equation. Likewise, God's holiness, God's holy calling and design for humanity involves that we separate from things. Like the Apostle Paul when he was writing to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 when he asked, What fellowship hath the light with the darkness? The answer is none. The law of Moses is filled with purity laws that stress separation. Being separate was a part of Israel's role as a priesthood to the earth. They were to be different from the rest of the world. And so they have different dietary laws. They even have different fashion laws. You can't wear this, you can't wear that, you can't eat this, you can't eat that. Being a Gentile, I thank God that I'm not under the covenant of Moses. Because I love cheeseburgers and bacon on top and that's three strikes against you on kosher law. There's all sorts of stuff you can't do. You say, why does God tell him not to do stuff and not touch things and not eat things and not wear things? Because it's all about this ritual symbol of being separate. Other people do that. You guys don't do that. We're different. I'm making you different. So that the nations of the world will look at you and go, why are you guys different? And you'll say, because there's this God who has liberated us, who's rescued us. And this God is merciful to you as well if you would come to him in repentance and faith. And so all of this separation, all this purity as we're reading here in verse 62 and we're seeing this little brouhaha here about names and going, hey, but do you guys, your Ancestry.com doesn't line up here. And in this age, God has continued to call his people and continue to envelop people into the promises of Israel. And we are reminded, Gentiles among us, looking at verse 62, that we would be separate and apart from the promise, but by his grace through the Son Born, born a descendant of David, born a child of Abram, would come and would make us who ought to be separate and unclean. He would bring us in, in God's economy. We see separation. We see God's call for separation. We see God's work in redemption by making a separate people. We see see the practical nature of this in our own lives because you want to separate yourself from sin. You you not only want to separate yourself from it, but you want to flee from it. I think of the Apostle Paul who said, flee from sexual immorality. You don't want to just separate, you want to run away from it. You want to get away from it. You say, we don't do that. And so too, as as Christians, while we have a different law than the nation of Israel in the days of Ezra, there's stuff that God tells us not to do that looks different and makes us look different. I was watching the news this week. Uh, The news was popping up about the thruple. Did you hear about the thruple? Thrupple is a play on the word couple for a polyamorous immoral threesome. Three dudes managed to spend over $100,000 on surrogates, implantations, medical procedures, and illegal uh, contracts to manage to get all of their names on uh, one baby's birth certificate. I look at that and I go that's, that's, that's not my understanding of marriage, <laughs> that's, that's not my understanding of family. That, we're separate from that, that's not how we do things. And as well in our separation, we're called to be different from the way the world does things, but we're also called to be compassionate and prayerful and ready, ready for ministering to the broken and the confused by sin, knowing that that's where we would be but by the grace of God. And so as we separate, it's not a, a matter of, I'm better than you or, ooh, look at what you're doing. The world does what the world does because the world's in the darkness. Where our critical gaze should be fixed are on the people who claim to be in the light. ...who claim to have been separate but behaved in the way that the world does. And in Ezra that's what's going on. You guys look more like Persia than you look like your people. It's time to let go of the comforts of Persia and go back. And here you have people who aren't even in the promise who are like sign me up. And so this is this is about separation and holiness. It's about covenant. It reminds us that we were brought in and we're not on the Ancestry.com but it also reminds us of the state of affairs, the indictment on the people, that there were people who weren't even in the covenant who are willing to go to help while others were on the sidelines like, Meh, I like the cucumbers in Persia, I'm going to stay here. The governor said to them, verse 63, look at the text, that they should not eat from the most holy things until a priest stood up with the Urim and Thummim. All right, y'all can come. We need help. Heck, our people aren't even here. We only got two tribes represented. Where are the other ten? What's going on? We got a bunch of priests. Not a lot of help. What are we going to do? All right, you guys, you know, come along. But you can't, you can't touch the holy things. Ezra, who's writing the text, is a Levitical priest. He knows the laws of Moses. He knows about ritual separation. Only the priests with the right record were able to handle the holy things. And it's not because God is OCD. Again, it's about God showing the people ritual and ceremonial separation, teaching us about what our sin has done. Our sin has separated us from him. And so the temple and the sacrifices and this is holy and this isn't are all about are all about teaching us about our reconciliation to God. Knowing this, the pagans, they 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 get their hands in the mixed. They've got governors, they've got people, as we have been saying, and so the governor kind of comes in and goes, ooh, this could be a tricky situation, uh, what's going on? Hey, hey, the governor said, don't, don't, don't touch anything, let's play this cool. We need the priest to show up with the Urim and the Thummim. The high priest of Israel had the Urim and the Thummim. The Urim and the Thummim hadn't been seen in 70 years. Now, we read earlier in the text in our study last week that Nebuchadnezzar hijacked stuff I likened it to Wakanda, you know, Black Panther at the beginning of the movie where he breaks into the museum and gets some Wakanda stuff. Like he, He's jacked stuff from the empire and they're getting it back. So among that must have been the Urim and the Thumim. They had taken that from the high priest. And that was all about seeking the will of God. It had a long history in the worship of the people. There's not time to talk about it. Suffice it to say, there's restoration coming, there's order coming, there's separation, but there's also an indictment. The Aliyah isn't beginning well. Who's coming with me? We got like outsiders coming. That's fine, final point on your outline, population and sacrifice. Verses 64 through 70, we see the census of the people continued. The population who is answering the question who's coming. The author adds up the population. He includes in the account animals, horses, mules, camels, donkeys. These animals would be necessary for the journey. And when they, get the, when they get there, they will need their animals to sacrifice. They're gonna need lambs and goats and, and bulls and other animals but the temple's in ruins. So first, they're getting animals, they're getting back, they're, they're getting there, they're rolling up their sleeves. Let's do this. Verse 68, look at the text. Some of the heads of the fathers of the household. Verse 68, when they arrived at the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem, they offered willingly for the house of the Lord to restore it on its foundation. According to their ability, they gave to the treasury for work. We read about gold drachmas and silver minas and priestly garments. We read about the sacrifice of the people and how they were, they were willing to give. I shared with you guys a week ago today, for those of you who are on the Zoom call, I made mention of this in the sermon earlier about the difficulties of being in a place like Los Angeles, the sacrifice that it requires, the crazy year, the government shutdowns, and all all the politics and all the rest and what it had done and how we shaved off of our our budget. And we have uh, people on staff with families taking pay cuts and the rest. And I shared with you on the Zoom call the good news that we had one donor, Without any solicitation, come forward and write a check for that complete deficit, $150,000. Check, boom, in the bank. Numbers are down, but God still provides. So too with Israel. Numbers are down, but watch God rebuild the temple. And those who decided to stay, those who didn't participate, they miss out on this. These drachmas, these silver minas, these priestly garments, all of the things that they are giving isn't under compulsion. They don't feel guilty about it. It says that they gave willingly, not just their money, but their lives. They were willing to die. They are, they are giving their goods. They left the comfort of the Persian polis for a major and risky journey to a burned down ghetto. Recently, I watched the footage of the Tulsa Race Massacre in 1921. If you're not aware of that, look on my Facebook page. I posted a video about it. The 1921 Tulsa Massacre, the burning down of the Black Wall Street by racists. And you see it all burned down to the ground. Hundreds of people's dead, their businesses, their homes, all of it dead and in the ashes. And the thought of rebuilding that would have been the last thing on my mind if I were in the 1920s. And a part of the African-American community in that section that had their homes devastated. I would have said, I'm out of here. I'm tired of this. I can't do this anymore. But Ezra is calling the people, no, we're going to rebuild. Don't you want to be a part of it? Mind you, it's not them doing it. Ezra 4, 6, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Oh, that the Lord would do that today for us, Delray Church. Oh, that the Lord would do that for the church in North America today. To turn from trust in Cyrus, to, to turn from the quest of the picket fence to carry the, 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 the cross to the rugged place of Calvary. You know, I've, I've heard people say, they'll die, I'll die for my religious liberties. I've recently seen people that are unwilling to actually exercise those religious liberties. They don't exercise them, they don't share the gospel, they're not bringing people to Christ, they're not making disciples, they're not in corporate worship. And they'll even divide over non-essential things when the essentials of the gospel, preaching, teaching, communion, care for the widows, feeding of the poor, discipleship still goes on. Unlike Israel, we don't have a promise from God for this place. America deserves to lose it all if we're being honest. But the Lord promised and the Lord used His people to those ends and He is still at work to this day through his people and his promise to the children of Abram still stands and we're waiting on the Messiah to come and land from the clouds into the holy city of Jerusalem and restore his kingdom and he taught us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I'm reminded of Judges 7 which was preached to us by men in this church and Gideon's army. Gideon's army, remember remember what God did to Gideon's army, how he whittled them down? to show them the battle belongs to the Lord. So too in Ezra, you don't have a lot of people. You only got two tribes represented. You got priests, but not servants. But oh, watch what God does as he raises up the phoenix. Delray Church, behold our God seated on his throne. Come, let us adore him. Behold his throne, which in the book of Revelation we read has the Lamb's book of life, which is full of names, the names of every believer. What we see in Ezra chapter two, this list of names, called by God is written in the Lamb's book of life in Revelation and there too you will find your name if you are in him. The prophet Malachi said in Malachi 3:16 that there was a book of remembrance and in the book of remembrance it is written before him to quote Malachi for those who fear the Lord and who esteem his name. The prophet said there is a book And you are written in that book if you are in him. Your name is there. Could be a boring list of names and you go, boring list of names. No, those are people that have been redeemed by God and used for God on mission. Ezra is just a glimpse of the Lamb's book of life. Dr. Ironside described Ezra chapter 2 this way, and I love this. He says, it is a sample page from the books of eternity. A leaf out of God's memorial records spread out for our inspection. Ezra 2. And speaking of inspection of books, I began this sermon with the gospel and I proclaimed to you that there was another book, the book of deeds and the judgment of God that stands against us for the book of deeds. The bad news, we all have deeds recorded against us in God's courtroom but the good news is that the eternal Son came and became a man to forgive us of our sins and erased us from the book of deeds and put us in the Lamb's book of life with these names here in Ezra 2. So as we come now in communion and we grab our cups We celebrate the one who has written our names by his blood. As we open the cup, we think of his flesh, not just any old flesh. This is the flesh of the children of Abram, the covenant of Abram. This is the flesh of David, the king who has come. And behold, the one in flesh who said to his people, there is a new covenant in my blood. Those of you those of you who are outsiders, those of you who don't have the right ancestry, to the weak, to the lame, to the marginalized, to the poor, to the broke, to the outcast, you have been called in. You have been invited to come. Let us feast on the one who has come. The cup reminds us of his blood. Ezra 2 reminds us of blood and sacrifice. These people would die to worship God. Missions exist because worship doesn't. That's why we're called to go, because he is worthy. That's why we sacrifice. That is why we've been saved and called to do these things. The blood reminds us of the cost. The blood reminds us that it is not by our blood that we do anything, but only by his. Our salvation was a gift. We didn't find this cup. This wasn't the Holy Grail. You're not Indiana Jones. You didn't, you didn't seek this thing out. He came to you while you were dead in your trespasses and sins, and he gave you this cup. Behold, the undeserving, the undesiring. Let us come, let us drink, let us celebrate the one who has given his blood for us. When he comes with this kingdom, he will have a feast. The names that we read in this book Brothers and sisters, you will meet the sons of Parosh. You will meet the sons of Gabar, the men of Bethlehem, the men of Anatha. you will meet them all. And we'll be there 10,000 years bright shining as the sun. And we'll know less days to sing God's praise. And none of this stuff is going to matter. Our homes, our stresses, our lives, our relationships, our, our mental anguish, our anxiety, our depression, our brokenness, all lifted, the lost, all redeemed, and we will be with him, and we will see his glory bright shining as the sun, the renewal of all things. And until then, as we behold withered ground, as we behold our brokenness, let us come and worship and let us go on mission. Landon's gonna lead us in song. Our our Levitical singer's gonna lead us in, in song and we'll sing a couple of songs and then the Levitical gatekeepers will close up. Would you stand? Let's prepare our hearts for praise as we stand. And as we pray, O oh Father, be merciful to us. Our sins are many, our burdens are heavy. We so desperately need you. Lord, thinking about how your mission has been accomplished throughout history by the few and far between, here this day, Lord, I pray for the faithful churches around this city who this morning have proclaimed the triune God and heralded the work of God in Christ. Lord, I I think of faithful pastors, uh, my brother PJ, my brother Bobby, my brother Anthony. I think of, 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 of my brother Andrew, my brother Mike pastors around this city that are getting up, explaining the Bible, telling people about Jesus. May they prosper. May you raise up Levites and priests for this dispensation. Men who will lead and, 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 and who will sacrifice. Women who will lead and sacrifice and fight and cry and live in love and intercede for the lost. Oh, Lord, have your way with us. Receive these songs of worship. Receive our offerings this day as we give like the Israelites did. And, Lord, we give thanks and praise here and now for that generous donor who just poured out upon this church to keep us going. Lord, you've just continued to do that for us. We're standing next to a, a house that was donated to the church. This property. Oh, Lord, we thank you that you are reminding us in such a day where We're not able to go inside that the church is the people and not the building. Sanctify us as a people, I pray. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.